Hello and welcome to the 100 Day Writing Challenge, day 67. So yesterday we mucked about with this funny little binary interplay between light and dark to see what it did to your style, your rhythm, the flow of your writing. Today I want to play with something similar, again just to help you become more conscious of the choices you're making all the time. I want to give you an example by way of a quick thought experiment, and you may well have heard me talk about this before. It's one of my favourite examples. I can't shut up about it. I really enjoy it. So if you have heard me talk about this before, please hear me again. Okay, so I'd like you to picture for a moment yourself at home. Close your eyes and, and set the scene. If you're listening to me at home, this won't be a terribly tricky effort of creative mentation. But wait, you hear a noise at the front door. You go and open it and there at your door is a dog in a hat. My question to you is this. In your mind's eye, what type of dog do you see and what kind of hat? I've done this exercise, and I, I use that term very loosely, with groups before. I, I did it as an, a phone-in on my old radio show because uh, I'm, 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 I'm weird and I don't have much respect for listeners. And, and, and in my experience, everyone sees a specific dog and a specific hat, but no two people see the same combination. So like today I saw a grey white pug in a yellow bowler perched at a rakish angle on, on the pug's head. I didn't plan that. Frankly, I would have chosen something less mainstream and uh, self-consciously quirky than a, a, a pug if I had. But my mind just supplied an image to fit the demands of the nouns it was given. Dog, hat. And people have reported seeing a whippet in a fez, an Afghan in a black tricorn, a French bulldog in a pith helmet. Often people don't know the name for the breed of dog or the hat that they can see, so they just have to describe it as best they can. But they're still seeing a specific dog with specific features, you know, one drawn from the real world and a particular type of hat. These aren't generally people coming up, trying, you know, trying to come up with funny, quirky answers. It's just an automatic response. You may well be wondering why this matters why I'm talking about dogs in hats yet again. But I think personally, and I may be wrong, but I do think understanding this process is fundamental to controlling your writing. As an author, you're continually making decisions on how to, how sharply to tighten your narrative focus. Every noun and verb you choose, and more crudely, every adjective and adverb you choose to modify them, changes what the reader sees. If you write, I opened the door, there in front of me, was a dog in a hat, then what you're doing is letting the reader's brain choose exactly what type of dog and what hat. If you write, there in front of me was an Alsatian in a sombrero, then no reader is going to see a pug in a yellow bowler. You've narrowed the semantic window. And, and, and there's not a right or wrong to this, much as I'd love to be able to give you a definitive, this is the one true way to write advice. You know, like I... I, I love being opinionated. It feels good to sort of say, this is wrong. Don't get me wrong, right? Like, I I, 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 I experience the uh, desire to bash ways of writing that maybe aren't the same as my own, but that's just nonsense in, at the end of the day. You know, my tendency as an author is to be as specific as possible. Crunchy specificity, you will have already heard me calling it, right? Much to my students' amusement is one of the things that people say to me the most, you know, in my kind of very minor celebrity as a creative writing teacher at book signings when I see people in real life, sometimes people will just say to me, 
crunchy specificity you know like it's like it's a catchphrase i guess it is it's a very weird thing to, for people to say out loud but i get it i laugh and it's just weird for people who don't understand that i say it a lot for a third party hearing someone walk up to another person and say crunchy specificity it just seems odd right seems like a weird seems like a mason's thing right like we're both part of a secret society which i suppose in a sense we are but look i no, I, I i don't want a tree i want a beach an elm a monkey puzzle a cypress you know someone's holding a gun is it a rifle shotgun pistol carbine we can go deeper what make you might well say well a, a, a pistol's a pistol but it but it's not you know a webley service revolver handles very differently to a broom handle mauser and those names you know they're just more evocative than gun most people can't, you know, picture one from the, the the name alone. Most people don't necessarily... Oh, the broom handle Mauser, right? It does suggest the broom handle element of it, right? But, like, you, most of us don't know all the guns. And, like, if you do know all the guns, you probably, you know, a, a very certain type of... Per- happy people don't know all the guns. You don't, you're not having a lovely life and go, I think I'll learn all the guns. But um, look, it doesn't matter, you know, like it just it, when I say the names, it feels more real, more textured. It also implies sneakily authority. It probably makes you think, if only on a subconscious level, oh, this author knows a bit about guns, which may make the world they're conveying feel more authentic, more real. So you believe in the story a little bit more. You feel more immersed, which means everything that happens in it is going to hit you that big bit harder because you're experiencing it as reality. And that's because we, as human beings, we live in a world of specifics. We don't just like float round perceiving general categories and archetypes. We encounter specific, unique objects that happen to conform to these different categories. When I ask you to picture a dog in a hat, your mind probably doesn't just like pop up this generic semiotic marker for dog that it can just plop down into the scene, you know, like the equivalent of a stick man, but for dog or sort of like a a brown triangle with the word dog written on it. Your brain converts the concept dog into something specific and real. It, It picks a dog from all the choices of dog at random. It commits where the writer, in this case me, didn't. On the other hand, right, I've been criticised for having too much faff in my prose, and that's probably a fair comment, because as I say, a lot of the time when you do give a general category, the reader's brain will supply the specific one anyway. So it's like, well, why why did you need to step in and spoon-feed them one? Why can't you just let their brain do it? It'll come up with a dog, whether you specify or not. So do you need to step in and slow the story down as you kind of like painstakingly name and specify every single thing you know the reader doesn't need to know the exact subspecies of flower in the window box your protagonist is passing and and a lot of readers don't want to know frankly and especially if your protagonist isn't interested in flowers themselves you know that how it it breaks us out of their point of view if you if you if, if, if suddenly within their third person limited narrative you're able to name the genus of all these different flowers i don't know the names of flowers that i'm passing i can see that there's pink and yellow ones but i don't necessarily know the specific species and if flowers aren't pertinent to the conflicts they're facing why would they notice you know like you have to pick your battles right simplicity lest we forget, can be bold and vivid. A sun sets over a red sea. The beach is empty. A girl walks alone across the sand, stopping now and then to kneel and pick up a shell. Now that's really simple, right? 
There are a bunch of nouns there that could be more specific. What kind of shell, Tim? What does this girl look like? But I don't think any of those words needed to be more specific. It feels in that scene that we're observing from a distance and... I mean, I know I wrote it, but I can picture that scene well enough. And I bet you can too, and it moved fairly quickly. So be let me be absolutely crystal shiny clear. This is not a question of good and bad. Some authors choose to commit to one or the other. You know, some authors write really stripped down bare bones prose. Others write wet, pungent, detailed prose. Some move between both styles as their scenes demand. Now, I have my bias on this, but I'm not trying to turn you into a clone of me. I'd be hugely disappointed if at the end of this hundred days you come out writing identically to me. That would be a colossal failure of pedagogy, right? All that matters for you is that you're conscious of the effects your choices create, that you understand you have control. It's... I suppose, like the analogy is, it's like choosing between a wide-angle shot and an extreme close-up. And of course, there are all sorts of shades between those two polarities. Very detailed prose, for the most part, is usually slower because of the burden of information you're conveying, but not always. Like, for example, he poured himself a Coke, or he poured himself a Scotch, or he poured himself a milk, are all no longer than he poured himself a drink. But each, I think, is clearer, more accented. At least to me, you know, they don't really require any specialist knowledge. Most readers will understand what a Coke, a Scotch and a milk are. Um, so it's kind of often, you know, you have the, you, you can you can increase the fidelity of a scene at no cost. But you may not care that uh, a character routinely sips on a highball glass of skim milk. To me, that, that is quite a cool quirk. Anyway, today you're going to write a short scene. It can be in present or past tense, first or third person, or even in second if you're feeling fruity. It's up to you. You're going to write about a character waiting for someone or something. I'm sorry to use the kind of like waiting kind of like default again, but I just think it's, it's a nice sort of like uh, opportunity. It's like, uh, and, and there's so many scenes in which that can be happening, right? So you're going to need to pick a location. There may be other people there. There may be, a, they, they may be alone. But for this scene, crucially, a little bit, like we did yesterday, you're going to alternate sentence by sentence, except instead of going positive negative, you're going to be going between low detail and high detail, between these two styles of crunchy specificity and sort of general cases, between a dog in a hat and a dachshund in a straw boater. So you, you might start, a man sits, his eyes closed, low detail. In his dark fingers is the smouldering stub of a Marlboro Red. High detail. It's evening. Low detail. He has on a pair of checkered chef's trousers, fluorescent orange Puma disc system trainers, and a puffy powder blue dressing gown, its pockets bulging with scraps of notepaper. That was high detail. He smokes and breathes and thinks. Low detail. And so on. Low high, low high. Feeling your way through the scene, discovering this character and what their deal is. Okay, that's it. That's the exercise. Someone is waiting for something or someone. It's your scene. You've got 10 minutes. Good luck. Are you ready? Three, two, one, go.
and that's it. Now that was a challenging task, so kudos for taking a run at it. How did it go? How did that rhythm feel moving between simple descriptions and more gnarly textured ones? I suspect, although, you know, your experience is valid, but I suspect like yesterday, actually, although when you are sitting down to write it, you are very sort of like explicitly going, this is the low, this is the simple sentence. This is the complicated sentence. Uh, like yesterday when you're doing, this is a positive one, this is a negative one. Actually, when you write them as a scene, they actually bleed into each other in a way that it, it, the difference between the two isn't as obvious when you read it back. Because sentences and paragraphs are kind of built as a slow accumulation. We, Although we read them sequentially, weirdly our brain does a thing where we sort of mix them all together into this gestalt. And so even though you may then switch to like low detail because we've already kind of like set up some expectations for the scene. Sometimes the low detail moments seem very naturally high fidelity because because we've got tone and stuff that's giving us all sorts of clues to what those things are. We see them in high def, even though you're not giving us that, that much information. And the same with yesterday when you're doing positive and negative. Sometimes the lines that are like ostensibly positive where you're just like you know, like reflecting on the beauty of something, feel kind of weirdly dark because we know the context. And the weirdly dark ones can have a kind of wonder to them because you've been giving us these moments of lightness. None of these exercises, BT dubs, has a single secret moral, of course, but some, like this one, work as a little proof of concept for a particular move you can ingest into your repertoire. Switching between low and high detail sentences can give a scene just like a really easy, readable, dynamic flow. Dense clumps of information are balanced and broken up by crisp, simple prose that moves things forward and helps orient the reader, right? Like those moments of low detail, they, it's just easy for your brain to parse those and you go, okay, I know where I am. And then you can kind of get away with your slightly more fruity, artistic moments. I wouldn't be surprised, though, if by the end of the piece um, that rhythm was starting to feel a bit forced. And that's fine. The purpose is not to say, hey, now write an entire novel using this as a governing rule. But if you're introducing us to a character for the first time, that push-pull tension between movement and detail, mystery and answers, you know, it's a good place to start. Tricks like this, and they are tricks. All of creative writing is just daisy-chaining together these little techniques. No shame in that. can be a really good way to ease you into a scene, especially if you're feeling a bit overwhelmed. Where do I start? What do I write about? Just taking on board one of these restrictions can really help. It could just cut down the things you've got to think about, right? They give you a rule to follow and that takes some of the pressure of the blank page off. You can come back later and you can smudge it, you know, like someone doing a charcoal drawing, taking out those kind of hard lines and breaking the rule in places where you feel it could use being to be broken so your prose is less regimented. Or it might be fine as it is. Anyway, look, tomorrow, please, I've got a little sort of request for you. Tomorrow, when you come to listen to the podcast, could you please bring a novel with you? Um, ideally, by something by an author whose style you really like. We're going to take some of the text and we're going to monkey with it. So if you could just like have a, have a novel with you, um, that would be really handy. Take care, dear friend. See you tomorrow. The 100 Day Writing Challenge is made possible with the kind support of Arts Council England.